I really was determined when I got out into the journalism world that I would try to tell stories in a more humanistic way so that I wasn't perpetuating that very narrow view of success or that very narrow-minded, in my view, value system that it's all about winning and excellence. It's winning or nothing. This is the Reform Sports Project, a podcast about restoring healthy balance and perspective in all areas of sport through education and advocacy. Hi, this is Nick Bonacore from the Reform Sports Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Karen Krause, award-winning journalist, acclaimed author, and former collegiate swimmer at the University of Southern California. A New York Times sports writer for 16 years, Karen first entered the world of newspaper reporting when she joined the Savannah News Press, where she was the first woman to work in its sports department. In 2018, Karen released her book, Norwich, One Tiny Vermont Town's Secret to Happiness and Excellence, which explains how a small town in Vermont has prioritized holistic athlete development over performance and has produced more Olympians per capita than any other place in the country as a result. Karen and I discuss how youth sports has become hyper-competitive as opposed to communal, the lessons she learned as a Division I collegiate swimmer, and how damaging it can be to wrap your identity in athletics. I got another awesome guest. She is uh, someone I've spoken with several times. It's been a few years since we really hopped on a call together. I'm excited uh, to reintroduce her to the audience. She is known by a lot of folks out there in sports and journalism. And, and she's an author. She's a journalist and all around. She's a former swimmer. Um, she may still swim, but she's a collegiate swimmer and she's a bad A. She's awesome. So I'm really <laughs> pumped to have her. Karen Kraus. Karen, thanks so much for hopping on. Nick, it is my pleasure and privilege, honestly. Well, I appreciate you. And I want to listen, how we got connected going back. Obviously, a lot of people know I partnered with Octagon, uh, the Olympics and Action Sports Division in particular. Um, Peter Carlisle and his team, they represent a number of uh, obviously Olympians, one of them being Michael Phelps. And, and if I'm not mistaken, I know you covered MP for a while and uh, maybe you still do. But, you know, through that relationship with Peter, who I had on the podcast, you know, he was like, listen, you got to you got to speak to Karen Krauss. I mean, she was also an, an athlete, but more importantly, she wrote this crazy, awesome book about, you know, this this town. She I think you grew up there in Vermont, Norwich. And, and there's like the most athletes per capita of any state, I believe, or city in the country. Can you kind of get into the, the book? I'd love sure. to hear about it. First of all, you know, I need to uh, send my check to Peter for being my uh, my unpaid publicist. I do appreciate his <laughs> shout out. Um, and I am actually working on um, a project with Michael. We have he's doing his mental health memoir. And I am super excited about that. That's he awesome. Is, He's been really open and honest to the detriment at times of his own mental health and telling his story and struggles. So um, really looking forward to that, seeing the light of publication. But anyway, yes, I actually did not grow up in this tiny town in Vermont. I had never stepped foot in Vermont before. I put my, I I put my foot in my mouth on that one. No, huh? no. But it was what happened was when I finally did visit this um town, um, very tiny town across the river from Dartmouth, I immediately felt at home in a crazy way because even though I grew up in California, in Santa Clara, a place everyone now knows thanks to the Silicon Valley revolution, the tech revolution, and the 49ers moving their base there, but 
in the 70s when I was growing up there, it was still very much an agrarian um, place. We had orchards right across the street from our subdivision. Um, a bunch of my friends would pick apricots every summer. You know, that would be their summer job. It was just very much not like it is. It's pretty much the opposite of what it has become. So when I spent time in Norwich, I immediately felt this affinity to this place because it started out as an agrarian town and has maintained that, um, not that culture, but the the ethos, the agrarian ethos that, you know, we're all in this together. Um, we have to stick together and help everyone because, you know, life is tough and um, nature is unpredictable. So that was what in many ways, I felt like I had lived there forever when I had been there less than 48 hours. So I went to the town just because I had heard someone had emailed me when I was working at the New York Times and said, you should check out, I've been reading your stories from the 2014 Olympics. You should check out this town in Vermont that Hannah Carney, who was um, a gold medalist in 2010, in mogul skiing and was competing, defending her title in 2014. So this person had been watching her um, in the Olympics and said, you should go to Hannah's hometown. It has produced, you know, more Olympians per capita than any town in America. And so I kind of went there with this jaundiced view of, oh, so this is some kind of like a sport factory, you know, like a Bradenton, the IMG Academy in Tampa or something like that, where this is the whole purpose of the community is to create these pro athletes and nurture them. What I found was it could not have been further from that. It was, they almost produced these Olympic athletes accidentally. The whole idea, people live there. It's a very isolated, not easy to get to. Anyone who has been to Dartmouth knows that. And so if you live there, you really want to be there. I mean, it's not somewhere you accidentally end up. Well, I grew up, I grew up not to interrupt you, I grew up in Connecticut. And I got to tell you, the, the, the climate is not exactly what I would consider no. to be the most favorable. And that actually is part of the story because the winters are terrible. They're, you have to be a hardy soul to survive them. And so what I found among these Vermonters is they're like, well, you know, we have a choice. We can be housebound for four or five months, or we can just get out in nature and be hardy and tough it out and enjoy, enjoy the winter wonderland such as it is. And so that's what they do. During the winters, every Wednesday, the kids are let out of school after a half day so that they can go skiing. There were these um, skiing programs where the parents were the instructors. It was, you know, free. Um, everything was, it was very egalitarian, one for all, all for one. And the thing that was most impressive to me, perhaps, is that I'm sort of used to sports being seen as a zero-sum game. For my child to succeed, your child must fail, and that it's very competitive, cutthroat. So, like, I want to get all the medals. My child needs to get all the trophies. You know, it's sort of this that it's become very competitive as opposed to communitarian or communal or 
collaborative. The word that's coming to my mind, not to interrupt you, is intent. Like people sign their kids up with intent. It sounds like what you experienced or saw at Norwich was almost a complete opposite. Exactly. So much so that when I, I moved there for six months while I was reporting the book and I had very early on, I went to an exercise class and one of the other women in the class said, oh, are you that New York Times reporter here to do a book? And I said, yes, actually I am. Oh, well, you need to meet so-and-so because her son is an upcoming mogul skier. And it was almost as if in Norwich, one child's success is everyone's success. So people would brag on other people's children. I mean, everyone bragged about Hannah. They all felt so proud of her achievement because they looked at it not as her parents' success, but the town's success. And they all felt as if they had watched her grow up and watched her develop and had been part of her story. And so it was just this great... um, very, um, again, communal, generous spirit that reminded me so much of Santa Clara when I was growing up. And in the 70s, when I was growing up in Santa Clara, it was the swimming mecca, not only in the United States, but arguably in the world. And that was exactly how I felt when um, when someone would do well at the Olympics or win a national title everyone would be so excited because it was like, that's our person from our neighborhood that did that. So I definitely saw that. I saw people putting their kids into sports so that they could develop social skills, so that they could make friends, so that they could get outside in the winter. Um, They were not doing it so that they could become the next Hannah Carney or the next, you know, whoever. Um, It was very funny. Two of the Olympians, there were 11 Olympians between 1960 and 2014. 11 Olympians from a town of fewer than 3,000 people. So, you know, it's crazy. And um, two of the Olympians were summer Olympians, including Andrew Weeding, a track runner who competed in 2008 and 2012 in Beijing and London. And his mother was so funny. She said, you know, Karen, after the book came out, she said, it's the craziest thing. You just like are this parent who just lets your child go and do whatever they want. Some might even call you neglectful and you get a book written about you. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, they were the opposite of helicopter parents. Once their child found his or her passion, they were supportive, but not, you know, it wasn't that they weren't chasing um, external goals. It was more intrinsic goals. We want you to develop a lot of these tools for your toolbox, you know, self-discipline, dedication, goal setting, um, you know, delayed gratification, all these things that you learn through sport. We want you to make friends. We want you to get outside instead of playing video games, you know, after school. Um, all of this played into their sports participation, and yet they become quite successful at it. Two of the... Um, well, actually, three of the athletes were ski jumpers, and... Um, Two of them are the best ski jumpers that America has ever produced. And the one learned 
ski jumping because the older of the ski jumpers knocked on his door one day, they were like 10 or 11, and said, hey, um, I have these skis for jumping. You want to come jump with me? And that's how the kids started. And they were competitive. I mean, clearly they were competitive. They were the best uh, jumpers we produced. So they were absolutely um, going up against each other all the time. But in in a healthy way, they were making each other better as they competed and trained together. So it, it was just such a, it's easy to become jaded about the Olympic movement, especially in the wake of the 2014 Olympics. And it's only gotten worse since then. But think of the 2014 Olympics were held in Sochi, a winter Olympics that was held in a climate where it was actually the same climate as South Florida at this time. You know, it was just seaside resort that Putin created an Olympics almost as stagecraft for his own agenda. And um, we held an Olympics there for reasons that only the IOC knows for sure. And it was just this really, it was easy for cynics to just say, okay, Um, The Olympics have jumped the shark now. It's just become, it's lost all of its values. And then I wander into this town where the values that I really hold dear, why I value sports, sports participation so much, were still very much in evidence and being practiced. So it really restored my faith in sport and elite sport to a large degree. Now, Um, My timing probably couldn't have been worse. They have not produced an Olympian since. Hannah was the last in 2010 and 14. So I hope I didn't jinx the um, town. But they're also, (laughs) the tension of that is, you know, they're dealing with um, the center of the winter sports scene in America used to very much be the East Coast, Lake Placid, because of all of the facilities created for the 80 Olympics. And now because of weather patterns, people are going out to Utah to Park City. And now they have the big ski jumping area from the 2002 Olympics. And, you know, they just feel like it's better snow and more predictable snow. So the center of um, the center of the winter universe in America has shifted westward. And that has probably impacted um, Norwich, along with a bunch of other factors that are in play, you know, Americans can see it just in their own lives. But there were just so many um, positives that I found in Norwich that I think are lessons for us all if, you know, we're paying attention. But I just am not sure that America um, on a large scale is willing to change its value system because that's what really you need to shift the value and the culture from an extrinsic reward system, valuing the medals and the trophies and the Olympic spots and professionalism and, you know, money to, well, I want to value all of the experiences gained from participating in athletics, all of the intrinsic benefits that you can get from sport. I'm such a fierce proponent of the intrinsic benefits because 
for those people who see sport as a zero-sum game, they would look at me as a failure. I'm a loser because I devoted 10 years of my life to swimming, you know, five hours a day for most of those 10 years and was a walk-on at USC. So I didn't even get an athletic scholarship out of the deal. I never made a national team. I certainly never even sniffed an Olympic berth. So gosh, what a loser I am. And yet I could not say more vehemently how much I disagree with that notion because the lessons that I gained from those, that decade in sports, I carry with me to this day. I'm 60 years old and not a day goes by that I don't use one of the tools I added to my toolbox during that decade in swimming to positive effect, whether it's goal setting, discipline, um, even with the manuscript I was telling you about, I had a time where I had to really grind and get a rewrite in by a specific time. And it was just like being in winter training and swimming. I had to just, you know, focus and zero in on the task and was able to do it. And that's all because of my swimming background. So I just feel like um, when we make it all about the extrinsic rewards, we're setting up most of the kids that get into sports to feel as if they're failures or they wasted their time. And that's so terrible because there's so much value to sports beyond the um, medals and trophies and records that frankly, 10 or 20 years from now, nobody remembers, you know, even Michael Phelps, as great as he is, and he's the greatest, there's going to come a day where people aren't going to remember who he is. But, um, you know, I have friends that I met 50 years ago in swimming that are still in my inner circle. And if you would dissect our lives now, you would say, how on earth do you people even know each other? You have such disparate lives. But that bond and that developmental stage in sports was so strong that it's withstood 50 years of maturation and divergent experiences and whatnot. So. I'm just a huge proponent of sports for sports' sake, not for all of these um, bells and whistles that people are espousing daily. I can feel so many different things that you're saying, especially from the teammate perspective, the experiences, um, you know, and, and here you are, you know, you've been working in sports, if I'm not mistaken, most or all of your you know, professional career as a journalist and, of course, as an author. And, you know, I remember when we left off, you know, way back, you had mentioned uh, you had interviewed, if I'm not mistaken, Urban Meyer. And, you know, you talked about how you know, he, he was a big proponent of kids sampling and playing different sports. He loved, right. you know, recruiting multi-sport athletes. But I feel like, you know, that is such a challenging circumstance because, as you mentioned, there is, or as I mentioned, there is this level of intent. You know, it's not just, you know, I take my kid to his eight-year-old baseball team and, you know, he's my fourth. Uh, I have six, so I have three older. So I have been through it before where I'll go to the car and sit and watch the practice or I'll I'll come back and get him. I don't want to stand by the fence. I don't want to do those things because I want him to have his time with his teammates, create that bond, you know, but at the same time, 
there's the intent, right? There's parents that aren't experienced. They don't have any idea. They may not have been an athlete themselves and they think they need to be all up. It's, it's do or die in that moment. Right, so to circle right. back, like where and how do, if we have coaches like Urban Meyer, and there's so many that I've interviewed who love the diversity, they love the well-roundedness. Why is it that, you know, it's such a challenge, do you believe, you know, from your experience of interviewing all of these yeah. athletes and coaches that they feel the need to have to concentrate in one thing so early? Is it just because this pressure, this external? Oh, I have a definite view on this and it's such a wonderful question. So thank you for it. Um, this is my take. I think that youth sport has become a cottage industry and you have all of these people who have seen the economic gain to be made through youth sport and through sort of exploiting every parent, you know, desire to do what's best for their child, to help their child succeed, to be successful and happy, etc. And um, right after my book was published in 2018, that draft, J.J. Watt, tweeted out, you know, something like 70% of the players drafted in the first round of that 2018 draft had done um, multiple sports through high school. And J.J. Watt tweeted this stat out, and I would have to check. I'm just saying this off the top of my head, so I could be mistaken, but it was well above 50%. And he added, anyone who tells you that your child needs to specialize doesn't have your child's best interest at heart. I remember that. And I immediately tried to get him a book of Norwich, you know, the Norwich book through. He was then with the Texans. But his point is so spot on that think about it. I'm sure you've already had your eight-year-old, you've had people approach you and say, well, you know, if he just got a little extra coaching, like I could work with him once a month on his hitting and he would be much better. Once a month. There it's it more is. like I could like it once a week and more like that. Well, there you go. And they're not volunteering their time. That's a hundred dollars a pop or whatever it is. And I think that's what's happened. This has become a whole cottage industry with a lot of people trying to see how can I make money off of parents' desires for their children to be happy, successful. Um, I don't want to say they're preying on parents, you know. Fine, and I'll say it. Some of them are pre some but, of them are preying on them. But I think it's a question worth asking when you have a coach who says, well, okay, if your child wants to play basketball and we'll miss our off-season baseball conditioning program, well, you know, that's fine, but I don't allow anyone on my team that misses off-season conditioning. As a parent, ask yourself, does this person have my child's best interest at heart? Just ask the question that J.J. Watt was posing in that tweet. Because if you think about it, it's either a control move by the coach or they want you to um, be all in for reasons that have to do with numbers, money, you know, I don't know. I, I just really truly believe in what JJ was saying there that before the age of 12, um, at least, I think kids should be able to try a number of things. And I'll give you um, two examples. So 
um, Michael, everyone thinks of Michael as this child prodigy swimmer. And he was setting national age group records at 10 and under, 11, 12, etc. But until he was 12, he was also playing football, baseball, soccer. He played other sports. And um, in my book, Andrew Weeding, the track star that I mentioned earlier, He played soccer for many years before he um, came. He came to track quite late in high school, actually. And he also played basketball on his high school team, not because he loved basketball, mind you, but because he was the tallest player. He was the tallest student in his class. So the basketball coach begged him, will you please come out for basketball? I need you in the paint. So... Andrew hated basketball because he did not like getting jostled under the paint. He did not like that contact under the basket. He was the center who would come out and shoot threes. (laughs) But a funny thing, when he started um, competing in track, guess what? When he got boxed in on those, you know, 1500s, he knew how to create space for himself because of his experience in basketball. So in this way, this other sport that he had done and not really loved, but he realized, wow, this really gave me, this served me well for what I ended up loving. There were um, skills that I developed on the basketball court that are absolutely directly helping me on the track. And I think that... um, Jordan Spieth, I covered the PGA Tour for almost a decade, Mm -hmm. and Jordan played baseball um, before, along with golf and basketball, and he said the same thing. There are so many things, there's like cross-training that it doesn't, it seems maybe even counterintuitive at times, but there really are Um, skills that you can develop in one sport that will help you immensely in another sport that aren't immediately obvious. Like you could say, well, all the running in soccer would help you if you then become a track runner. Well, duh, but there are things that are more subtle than that, like playing under the basket and then finding yourself on the track trying to get, you know, free and clear of the field. So, um, I just don't think you can ever go wrong um, by playing and trying different sports, no matter what you eventually end up in. But for the um, traveling teams, and there's so much money to be made in these leagues. I mean, it's really crazy when you look at the money that is being made through traveling softball leagues and volleyball leagues and um, all of these tournaments where people are traveling to complexes that were built specifically for these purposes where there are eight fields. And, you know, it's just, it's really insanity if you think about it. When we come back, Karen and I discuss why early on in her journalism career, she set a goal to tell athletes' stories in a more humanistic way. Welcome back. Where we left off, Karen and I were about to talk about athlete identity and mental health and why having a narrow view of success is incredibly limiting. But at the end of the day, Karen, with all of your experience, 
um, you know, covering and, and obviously being an athlete yourself. I mean, you, you kind of sell yourself short as far as your career. I mean, you did swim at one of the biggest and most notable institutions oh, in sure. the world. And I'm- I'm very proud of it, but I've even talked about my um, experience. And of course, I'm traveling in a world of Olympians and world record holders. And even on my team at USC, there were people who looked their noses down at me because like, what have I ever achieved? I'm a nobody in the ways that mattered to them in terms of I was not a record setter. I was not a gold medalist. Um, you know, we even had on my team a 1980 Olympic gold medalist, which given that the U.S. boycotted is not a given on U.S. teams at the time, but it was an Australian distance swimmer. So um, it, it just, it's a mindset and I never, it doesn't bother me because I understand where they're coming from. They're coming from a very narrow version of success. Sports is only worth doing if you become the best at it. And I was lucky enough to grow up in Santa Clara, which was very much like Norwich in the 1970s, where, you know, if you grew as a person, people would um, embrace just your own improvement, you know, your self-improvement. People absolutely saw how I went from a very timid, shy nine-year-old to a very self-assured, you know, high school senior. I owe all of that to swimming. It gave me self-confidence. Um, it gave me resilience and, you know, the, the knowledge that I could overcome adversity, that adversity would not define me, that it's not whether you fail, but it's how well you get back up afterward. All these things that made me a much, um, you know, better, more confident human being I gained through swimming and people celebrated that. It wasn't like, oh, you know, we love you because you're the best in your high school or whatever. And so then I got to USC where I saw a very different value system in play. And it's like, okay, fair enough. That's your value system, but that's not my value system. And I really was determined when I got out into the journalism world that I would try to tell stories in a more humanistic way so that I wasn't um, sort of perpetuating that very narrow view of success or that very narrow-minded, in my view, value system that it's all about winning and excellence. It's winning or nothing, you know, all or nothing. Um, I did not have the career that Michael Phelps did by any measure, but I got everything that I needed out of swimming to become um, a functional human being in our society and to um, live a meaningful life as an adult. And when I was working with Michael on this project, I would often say to him, you know, I don't say this lightly. I'm kind of glad I was a mediocre swimmer because I see all of the challenges he faced as someone who from um, his teenage years was seen as the champion swimmer. So a lot of the developmental stages that you and I take for granted, he never really got to experience because people from a very young age saw him only as a performer and not as a person. I never had to worry about that, Nick. I knew that if someone liked me, it was because of me. It wasn't because of what I, my time was in the 100 fly. <laughs> so sure. it was a bit of a gift, actually. Um, 
you know, he said, Karen, imagine that from the time you're 15, you can never make a first impression on anyone because everyone you meet thinks they already know everything about you. I can't even imagine. Can you imagine how destabilizing that can be when you're a teenager trying to figure out who you are? Sure. And you can't even do that because everyone is already reflecting back to you, their version of you. Yeah. For God's sakes, I'm 43. I feel like I'm still trying to figure myself out in many ways. You and me both. But yeah, it's just, um, you know, there's, again, um, there are trade-offs and everything. And I, I think that I'm so very thankful for my experience as a walk-on at USC because being around all these marvelous athletes was so illuminating for me because I saw how the sausage was made and I saw how they in some ways felt boxed in by the image, you know, like they were the girls next door, like, oh, just had everything going for them. They won the athletic lottery Um, And they have this swimming gift and, oh, they're so great. But it didn't allow them to be human. So they felt like, oh, I can't make mistakes. I can't fail because then I am not, um, I am letting down the people who have this image of me. And boy, it's its own kind of prison, isn't it, to have such a, um, you know, narrow image that you feel you have to uphold and for people like Michael, for Simone Biles, that's just magnified a hundred times. And when you see that and you hear their stories and kind of put yourself in their shoes beyond the glamour part of it of like, oh, they get into all these VIP areas and they get to go on all these shows and all these people want them to be brand ambassadors. And when you get beyond that and see what their day-to-day lives are, you don't wonder how they have suffered the struggles they have, but wonder why more people like them don't. Because it almost seems as if it's unavoidable because the images that they are expected to uphold are unsustainable. Man, I can talk to you for a long time and we're going to do this again. Where can people find your work and how can they connect with you to dig deep and also, of course, uh, you know, get into uh, Norwich and purchase your book? Sure. So I would always um, advise you to find your favorite um, independent bookstore and call them or you can even Google, you know, independent bookstores order online. But as a last resort, there's that thing called amazon.com. Um, and you can find my book there in January of 2024. Uh, book on ghostwriting with the figure skater Gracie Gold, a 2014 Olympian and bronze medal winner, um, is coming out. So they can look for that. But um, yeah, I would really love to um, have more people read Norwich and then get their feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. I love it. Karen Krause, thank you so much for your time coming on. Sharon, I love your passion, love your energy, and I just can't thank you enough for uh, for taking the time. I know you're very, very busy and you have a writing schedule and I uh, just can't thank you enough for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure, Nick. Anytime. That's Karen Krause, award-winning journalist and acclaimed author. Thanks for listening to the Reform Sports Project podcast. I'm Nick Bonacore, and our goal is to restore a healthy balance and perspective in all areas of sport through education and advocacy. For updates, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our website by searching for the Reform Sports Project. 
Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.